welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. Got to turn off my organ music here. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All, episode 251. Sorry about the technical difficulty with the organ music there. I spent uh, the evening at a local minor league game last night, and they were playing organ music, so I just got into that that mode today. So old school baseball loves the organ, so we are celebrating it today here on Touch Em All. Uh, but to our audience, 73 countries now, over 42,000 subscribers, tons of colleges and tons of high school baseball coaches tune in specifically to this show to get the tutelage, as I call it, the little black book that Bob Schaefer has on uh, on baseball. It's the, it's the best deep dive you're going to get in the game. There's nothing out there like this show. So as you're getting ready and settled in for Bob, get your legal pad ready, your pencil and your sharpener and your eraser ready, and let's get ready to start writing here. So before Bob starts his class. So Bob, welcome back to your show. Well, it's good to be back again. Yeah, got to get a lot of great feedback from it. Uh, like I said, there's nothing like this out there where you're able to take an audio show and deep dive it to where you're given visual cues with your words um, to our our faithful listeners. And I think the the abilities to do that, I think prompted a little bit of our target with this show, which is coaching techniques. I think our audience craving for it. I think it's about, uh, you know, it's, it's the right time for it. We've got into bunting and base running and I mean, every technical skill in, in most of the situations, we still got a bunch more, but coaching techniques, I think um, it, it's apropos right now. So I'll kind of turn it over to you and let you get started on, on that. All right. This is some of the things that uh, I learned and I put together when I was managing, I mean, running a minor leagues with Red Sox, we had 25 coaches and managers working under me. Yeah, from AAA all the way down to the rookie league. But we talked about put this together and talked about how to handle situations and how to become a better coach. Um, you know, you got to realize that playing and coaching is a different profession. Just because you're a good player doesn't mean you can be a good manager. Usually, or coach, usually the best coaches and managers were guys who weren't great players, but they understood what it took to be a good player. So they're a little better teachers, I think. But there is a difference. Um, I think there's certain techniques that uh, a person can learn to become a better coach. I'll go over some of the things that I put together here. And, uh, you know, number one thing is you got different personalities and different characters on your team. It might be a little league team all the way up to a minor league team or college or somewhere in between. But uh, it's very important for the coach to kind of, you know, look at the personalities, look at the characters and try to mold them together. And that's probably the most important thing that a coach can do. Uh, They have to utilize certain approaches and techniques to get the most out of each player. And some players have to be pat on the back. Some have to be kicked in the rear end. Yeah, but you have to know, you know, what triggers every player. Yeah. Some, some uh, you just got to leave them alone, right? What's that? Some guys you just got to leave them alone. Yeah, right. I mean, it, like I said before in the past, the timing of coaching is most important. Some players you got to jump them right away. Some players you got to wait after the game. Some maybe wait till the next day. But that's all part of becoming a coach is getting to know your players and what makes them tick and what makes them better and what they're all about, all about basically. <clears throat> but evaluation is a, a constant process, uh, process, but, you know, putting the players in the right position, um, each, uh, each position is different. Uh, finding the right situation for each player, um, whether to have them bunt, whether to let them hit away. I mean, certain things in the evaluation process that you have to, you know, really learn about. And uh, I think it all starts with uh, communication. 
I mean, teachers and I mean, coaches are teachers first. And uh, you got to teach a person as an individual. Everybody's a little bit different, like I said. But once you get to know them and able to communicate with them, everything is a whole lot easier. Uh, you know, learning only takes process when a, a player is ready to learn. I mean, he could be in a slump, but if he's not ready to uh, try something different, you can't force him. He has to come to you, basically. But you have to have enough respect from the coach or from the players that they will come to you when they have a problem. And uh, it's more easily retained. You know, it's it's easier to coach a kid if he can if you can tell him why. When you're teaching him something, you got to always tell him why. You know, why we're going to do it this way, and then he can remember it a whole lot easier. Um, you know, the coach has to be organized in his teaching process. He should give the players a general idea of what they're trying to accomplish and how they're going to do it. Practice sessions should be organized so that all the players are doing something all the time. There's a minimum amount of standing around. When the guys are out in the outfield just standing around shagging, it becomes boring, and next thing you know, they develop bad habits or they just can't wait for practice to get over. So, you know, drills should be designed so everybody's doing something all the time, you know, within reason. And uh, every time you do a drill, it should be competitive, like game situations and game speed. Um, you know, one thing, again, you got to stress as a coach is that, you know, you're, you're their friend, but then you're not their buddy especially higher up you go. I mean, you're not going to hang out with them after the game. You might have a drink with them after the game, but, you know, they're not your buddy. They're your friend, but they got to be your friend and you got to be their friend so that there's a communication situation going back and forth. I think uh, one of the most important things as a coach is uh, instill confidence. Uh, success breeds confidence and confidence breeds success. You know, if a player thinks he can do something, he's going to be better off. He's going to have a better chance to get it done. But if he's negative, he thinks he can't do it. He's going to have a problem. I'll give you an example. I was a, I was interim manager for Kansas City Royals in nineteen, I mean two thousand five. And I, when I took over, I don't know how long it was to be the manager, but uh, Allard Barrett was a general manager. He was out looking for an experienced manager, or a guy who had experience in the big leagues. He ended up hiring uh, Buddy Bell, who had you know managed a couple of teams and had experience. But the big thing they wanted a guy since we had a bunch of young players. Aller wanted a, a guy who got to the big leagues at a young age. So Buddy Bell fit the bill perfectly. So anyway, I managed three weeks, as it turned out. I talked to every player. Emo Brown was one player I talked to. I said, Emo, let me tell you something. I think you are better than you think you are. I mean, Emo had good good talent. He could run. He could throw. He had some power. He's a pretty good outfielder. I said, you know, as long as I'm the manager, you're the right fielder no matter what. I mean, if you strike out four times tonight, you're still the right fielder. If you strike out four times tomorrow night, we might have to think about this a little bit. And he laughed, but I kind of loosened him up a little bit. So about three days later, uh, he comes to the bat. He's on deck, actually. We got him running around first, eighth inning. We're down a run. And you can see the pitcher is about to walk this guy. I mean, he's like 2-0, but he's struggling. So I come over from the on-deck circus and said, if this guy walks to be first and second, nobody out, you're gonna th- they're going to think you're probably going to bunt him over. You're not bunting him. Look for a pitch out over plate and whack it. You know, hit it up in the alley somewhere. Just just stay on it, but drive it up the alley. Okay, sure enough, he walks. He gets up, first pitch, boom, left center field, double, two-run score. We had a winner of the game. But after the game, he said, thanks. But, you know, I just put that in my I thought process in his head. It made him feel a little more confident when he went up there that he could do it. And that's what a coach is a good, you know, a good coach will do that. Just put something in his guy's head because a lot of times – you know, lack of confidence is basically, you know, failure. 
And when you don't have any confidence, like I said, you don't have a lot of success lately, the tension sets in. When tension sets in, the failure is just about going to happen. So if you loosen them up and have a little bit of a, you know, communication with them and just put it in his mind that you're good. You know, I told him the first day, or, you know, I told him, I said, you know, you're better than I think that I think you're better than you think you are. It kind of struck a, a you know, a nerve in his, in his body. Like, and he said, okay, that sounds good. So anyway, he became a good player. I mean, he had signed a big contract the next year. He thanked me for everything. I said, well, let me tell you something. Don't thank me. Thank yourself. I gave you an opportunity and you took advantage of it. But that, like I said, instilling a confidence is a big thing for a coach to do for any players. Yeah, it takes a, it takes going back to what you just described earlier with knowing the personalities, making them understand that you're not their buddy, and then putting them in situations before that where they they're able to demonstrate that that ability in some of your competitive uh, drills. Can can I uh, can I have you go back a second? You, you, I like the story connected with with Brown there with confidence. Can you talk to some of the you know you talked about personalities wise some guys you you kick them in the butt some guys you pat them in the butt and some guys you leave alone can you talk to some person uh to some specific instances with personalities on how you handle situations with guys well sometimes a uh, uh, you know a high level or a high high intense player you know he's so intense when he fails he's mad at himself and he don't want to listen to anybody so there's no sense in approaching him now just like i say in coaching before if you you can't coach a player until he's ready to be coached, and if he's like stubborn or he's like his mind elsewhere, you got to wait for him to cool off, and uh, you know wait for the next day or maybe for the, after the game at least. But other guys, you know, they just they lose their sense of uh, direction or concentration. Those are the kind of guys you got to say to him right away, look, this is what you got to do. You know, pay attention and you know get your mind in the game and so forth. But there's like. Uh, like I said before, you know, tension sets in and tension is the worst thing that can happen to you in baseball because tension goes to your eyes first. And when it goes to your eyes, you don't focus on the ball right, especially as a hitter. And, uh, you know, just one thing leads to another thing. And this guy's in the big leagues. I mean, a lot of big league players, good big league players go in slumps, you know, for 15. And you can see the tension. And they just say, I got to get a hit. I got to get hit. I know when I played in the minor leagues, I played with Ted Simmons. And Ted was 18 years old. I was 21 years old maybe 22. This guy was great talent at that time. You know, I'd be 0 for 4, he'd be 0 for 4. I'd go to game next day, say, I got to get a hit, I got to get a hit. He said, I'll probably get three hits. <laughs> so every time I'm up there, I'm squeezing the bat tighter and tighter trying to get a hit. And sure enough, he'll get two or three hits. But he had enough confidence in his ability, and he had great ability. So he's a Hall of Famer. But it just shows you that, you know, I was tensed up because I was hoping to get a hit. And he would say, no, I could probably get three hits. But that that's where the confidence comes in. And, you know, again, his talent had a lot to do with his confidence, but I know guys have a lot of confidence, but they get, you know, they get run down because the tension sets in and they just don't focus properly. And, you know, they're trying so hard that it's defeating the purpose. Yeah. You mentioned tension gets to your eyes first. And I always preach to players that, that I've coached in the past and currently that nothing athletic can be done when your body's tense. It's got to be nice. And I use the phrase, we got to be nice and easy on the journey, nice and loose on the journey. Talk, talk to that a little bit, because that's a great point. Tension goes to the eyes first. You know, I work for a company called AccuVision. Don Manley got me involved. And what it was is uh, it was a big board, and it had lights. You had to focus on the light in the middle, and then other lights would blink. And as they went on and off, you had to hit hit them. Focus on the one in the middle, but your your peripheral vision like told you where to hit them. And... Uh, that's where I learned from this eye doctor that, you know, when, you, when you're tense, you know, your eyes have muscles like the rest of your body. And when you're tense, your muscles 
they don't refocus. They don't track the ball like they should because they're tense. I mean, George Brett was a perfect example. Watching George for four years, I coached there. Um, he was always under control, no matter t- how tough the situation was. He seemed very relaxed. His hands were loose, and he just, you know, there was no tension sitting in there. Of course, he had confidence because he was good, but one reason he was good and had confidence because he was relaxed and he eliminated a lot of tension. So that's what, you know, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, think about vision training. You can improve your eyesight. You can't be, uh, you know, can't become a 2020 if you're 2040 eyesight, but you can improve it. You can, you know, dynamic visual acuity is what helps you see a baseball. You, you track the ball in the air so you know where it is. You can see the ball out of pitcher's hand. I was never able to see that. You know, I had 2020 vision, but I could never really track the ball like you should to be a good hitter. But the best hitters had the best visual dynamic, dynamic visual acuity. They see the ball all the way, they pick up spin, and then they, you know, the swing is one thing, but if you don't time it, no matter what kind of swing you have, it's all about timing, then the swing comes into play. But again, it's eliminating tension. That comes with success. That comes with confidence. And relax. I mean, you watch a player out there, a pitcher especially, when they're throwing ball one, ball two, you watch your arm. Their arm is stiff. It's almost like there's no flexibility in the wrist and everything else because their whole, their whole body is like, you know, tensed up. So being, you know, loose and uh, – you know, tension-free is what you got to try to accomplish. And again, it's tough when you're in a slump, but that's the only way you're going to get out of a slump. That's why a lot of times I got to get a bloop single and he's all feeling, feels good again. So he's yeah. eliminating some of that tension. That's it. And you, you mentioned a phrase, and I love this because, you know, when I, when I got my first college division one coaching job, I was 28 years old. So I was five, six years older than some of my players. So I had to draw a real, real thick line in terms of I'm not your buddy. Um, talk to that because, you know, coaching has to mirror parenting in a way and parenting today, you see a lot of parents trying to play that buddy role, with their kids. Um, how do you draw that, that line with them? And what are some, what's some advice you can give to some of our coaches out there? Well, I think the best thing is for the players to have confidence in you that you're trying to make them a better player. And I also told the players, like, I can't make you a better player, but I can help. I can tell you what you can do to make yourself a better player. But if they have confidence in you that you're helping them and not just making yourself look good as a coach, and there are those, there's coaches out there like that. They're what makes them look good as a coach. And in other words, they're fighting to get a better job or whatever, and they put a lot of pressure on the players to play well just for their own benefit. But I think once the players realize that you're out there to help you get better, and as you get better, the team gets better, that they will uh, have a little more, conf- more confidence in your ability to communicate and help them. But I think, uh, you know, it's just, it goes both ways. But, you know, having a good personality, having to be able to joke with a guy, that's something to do with it too. You know, you got you to, like, uh, have fun. You got to keep it a loose atmosphere. And I'll tell you another situation, like, uh, I was coaching in L.A. and Manny Ramirez was our left fielder. And Manny was never known to be a good outfielder, but Manny was better than a lot of people thought he was. He didn't have a lot of confidence out there, but he was better than a lot of people thought he was. So one day we're playing and he watched the ball in left field. He overcharged it and got tangled up with his feet and kicked away, and the guy ended up with a double. Well, he, he felt bad, so he's coming to the dugout. And, you know, instead of me, like, ranting and raving at him and, and telling him what the hell are you doing, blah, 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 all this stuff, I just looked at him and said, man, what the hell's going on out there? <laughs> and I started laughing. And he looked at me, and he started laughing, too. And he said, I don't know. I said, be out here at 3 o'clock tomorrow, and we'll work on it. Sure enough, he was out there at 3 o'clock next day. They hit a bunch of balls on the left field, and 
you know, he worked on it, but he wanted to be good. But the thing is, Manny didn't really want to mess the game up either. Like late in the game, if he was going to come up, if he wasn't going to come up, say we're up by whatever, he batted maybe two or three times before the inning ended at the end, and he wasn't going to come up next inning. he go to me, give me the hands under the chin, like, you know, get me out of here. So I go to Joe. Joe Torrey was a manager. I said, Joe, let's get Manny out. He said, okay. So I go into Manny. I said, Manny, you're out. He said, good, thank you. And he hugged me like, you know. He just didn't want to be out there. He didn't want to screw the game up. You know, he didn't have enough confidence in his fielding ability, even though he was one of probably one of the best hitters ever in baseball in the big leagues. I mean, he was a tremendous hitter, as everybody knows. But but he, he just had a little tension when he's on the outfield. But he, he wouldn't work at it. That's one thing about it. He would work on it. And uh, he wasn't afraid to come out early. He came out early a lot of times, and we worked on stuff. And, you know, he became acceptable out in the outfield, put it that way. And so kind of, so the audience understands all these things you're mentioning tie together. They're not segmented or siloed. So to give somebody like Manny confidence, talk into some of the competitive, you know, you said you have to make the, the drills or the skills competitive. Talk to that a little bit, go deeper into that. For audience. How do you do that? Well, you got, like I said, you got to, uh, when you do a drill, you got to make it, first of all, game speed, like PFP, pitchers, fielding, practice. You know, when you hit a ball, um, you head back to the pitcher or back to the third base with the pitcher covering first base. You got to have it where, you know, the pitcher has to go full speed at first base. I mean, the purpose of drills is for the pitcher to break, get the angle, catch the ball, touch the base, and get out of the way. But if you just do it haphazardly, it doesn't, it's not any good. So what I did, I used to do, I just put a bag of balls out there and had a player out there with a bag of balls. Doesn't have to be a first baseman, but I'd say go. So the pitcher runs full speed at first, gets in the angle, goes down his first baseline, parallel with the line, catch the ball, touch the base, gets out of the way. But if you, I've seen drills where coaches do it, you know, hit a ball to maybe a coach out there at first base or maybe a catcher, but anybody but a first baseman because the first baseman are doing something elsewhere. So it just becomes a haphazard drill. Nothing's accomplished because, you know, it's like guys go half speed at first, they'll Two out of three times or two out of five times, a guy feeling ground ball and miss it, it just becomes a terrible drill. So to isolate what you're trying to do, you're trying to perfect, get in the proper lane, uh, catch the ball, touch the bag at full speed like you would in a game. So that's what I talk about game speed. And, uh, you know, confidence, I mean, uh, sometimes like we had a drill too, I think we talked about it once before, to pick two teams, four pitches on each team. And one pitch would be in front of the mound, one pitch would be the third baseman, one pitch would be the first baseman, and the other pitcher would be uh, playing a position with the first baseman. You would, the one, one, one covers the base, and the other one, and they rotate around. So the pitchers at the plate, you know, for that team, would roll the ball out in a bunt situation, you know, put it where he wants to, you know, where the bunt would be. He runs hard to first base, trying to beat it out. Now the pitcher on the mound, the pitcher at third, come down wherever, would feel the ball and throw to first base. Well, that's competition and that's game speed because most of the time when a pitcher fumbles a ball or misses a ball in a game, he panics because not used to the runner running that hard and it's a panic situation. So he goes down there and next thing you know, his feet, feet, feet get tangled up and he bobbles the ball and he, or else he throws it away down the first baseline. So if you do it game speed, you know, eliminates that panic because he knows what he's got to do to do it right and do it game speed. So that's one drill that you institute, which is game speed. But any little drill you do, whether it's for the infielders or outfielders or whatever, 
You want to do it game speed. That's why infielders should take balls off the bat. That's game speed. Outfielders should always take balls off the bat. You know, coach hitting a fly ball to an outfielder is really it's kind of guy wash because it's not like a ball comes off a batter ball. Yeah. That, and, and what's the most ideal way to take it during BP, live BP? Well, live BP, you know, it's like the outfielders all sound like four groups, you know, one in, one group in the field, one group on second base, one group at third base, and one group hitting. But the groups in the field, again, the infielders will take fungos, but when they're not taking fungos, they get on the grass and react off a live swing, a live hit in batting practice, and, and get a jump on the ball and field the ball. Now, you can't field them all, but you're basically working on getting a jump on the ball, the first step quickness. Outfielders, you know, get the pitchers out of the way if they're out there shagging, get them out of the way, and, you know, shag for one group there. And, you know, I can do every pitch, of course, but, you know, you get ready. Sometimes you play in a little bit so you see how far you can go back. Sometimes you play a little farther back, depends if you feel comfortable. And then, you, you know, as soon as the ball's hit, you track it down and, and catch it. And you can tell how far you can go to catch a ball, uh, especially on balls overhead. you got to pick the wall up as you're flying, running after, pick up the wall, find the ball, pick up the wall again, find the ball, and so forth. But it's all game speed practice. It's not just, you know, standing out there and catching a fly ball. You got to get a jump on it. You got to get the right break, you know, you know, drop step and so forth. Well, I, I, I broke your rhythm. You were talking confidence before I, I pulled us back to get deep in that, but I think that helped our audience uh, kind of answer some of the questions they're probably going to ask me because they, they love your, your insight and they love when you deep dive it. So um, you, you were hitting on confidence before. What would you have next after confidence on your coaching techniques? Well, again, confidence. I mean, if the player feels the coach has confidence in him, he's going to be confident, more confident in himself. But patience is another most important thing. You know, you got to be patient with a player. A lot of times you have to uh, try something different. Um, you know, it's not working that way. But instead of going to the player and say, hey, that's not going to work, you got to say, hey, maybe I can help you with something. Let's try something else. Just try it. Don't force it on anybody. But once you try it, you got to give us some patience. You can't, it ain't going to have instant success. So once, once you change something, you got to give it a chance to work. At first, it's going to feel awkward to him. So you change his stance, which change it, you know, put his hands higher, put his hands lower as a hitter. You know, that's going to take a while for him to feel comfortable. But you have to have patience. And like I said, you know, you can't just give up after he does it 10, 12 times. It's like the old saying, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But if you leave them long enough, he's going to get thirsty. So if you just, you know, you convince what you're doing is right, just be patient with it and let the player kind of work it out and see how he makes out. Yeah. How important is it for the players to have their own ideas too? And when you're talking about patience. Well, that that's the best thing. I mean, we also talked before, you know, a coach, like I said, you can help a guy get better, but the player is up to him to make himself better. And the player has got to be his own coach. And once he's on the field, once he's in the batter's box, He's his own coach. He's got to make his own adjustments. You know, you can see if he's jumping out there and, you know, lunging at the ball, can learn how to stay back, you know, see the ball to pitch his hand, stuff like that. But once you train him and what he's got to look for, then I think uh, he's got a better chance to be better, but he's got to be his own coach. You can't be looking in the dugout all the time. Even though a lot of these coaches right now, they kind of like coach everything. They don't like give a guy a chance to become or find out what he has to do and so forth. But, I think you just have to uh, let him, let him, give him the guidelines, but let him figure it out himself. Yeah. 
Now, the, the, the way you describe work, and I see this as well, I, I always I phrase it, they're, they're joysticking players like it's a video game, is, and if, if you don't know, that's fine, but what's the philosophy behind that? Why is that done? As you're describing this stuff, you're trying to teach, your, your methodology is to give people tools, to, not to make you obsolete, but so they can start figuring out their own problems. Um, what's, what's the method in, of the madness behind the joysticking? Why, why do people do that? I think because some coaches want to control everything. I mean, I know coaches in college that call every pitch. I saw a guy in the minor league said that team had one of the best prospects as a catcher and a pitching coach called every pitch. I mean, before this thing with the, you know, on the wrist there, the uh, electrical thing, whatever it was called, I forget what it's called now, but you know, catcher used to get the signs, but the catcher always gave the sign for the pick. I mean, from the dugout, they call it pickoff, throw over, you know, the slide step series, they call it. We're controlling the base runners. I don't know any big league team or any minor league team, except there's one team I saw that would call a pitch, like curveball, slider, fastball, whatever. I don't know if anybody's that smart to be able to call a pitch. That's where you train the catcher to call his own pitches. And in between innings, you might talk to him and say, well, what were you thinking when you called this pitch? And uh, if he has a reason, you can't second guess him. But if he had no reason, you got to look at You got a reason to call every pitch. But that that's what, you know, you got to teach him to, to teach themselves and get better. I mean, catching is a tough position. Usually takes a guy one more year to get to the big leagues and other positions because he's got to call a game, and that's probably the most important thing a catcher does. But uh, the pitcher, coach, or the manager, you know, once in a while he's got to, you know, interject and say, uh, you know, what are you thinking there? Or even before the pitcher goes out there, you know, what's his best pitch today? And the pitcher and the catcher's got to talk all the time to get in, in uh, you know, like in sync how they're going to pitch certain players. I mean, good catchers and pitchers will talk in between the dugout, between innings, and look at the first three hitters coming up and say, okay, this is what we got to do to get this guy out. What's going to do about get that guy out and so forth. All factors into the uh, hitter's weakness and the pitcher's strengths. So that that's where, you know, the interaction to players and even yourself to tell yourself what you got to do is most important to become a good player. And, again, the most important thing a player knows is what kind of player he is. Here we talked about um, Volpe. You know, he's got a quick bat, but he thinks he's a home run here. He's swinging up at everything, and he's not going to hit home runs swinging up. He might catch one now and then, but he's going to miss a lot of balls, going to foul a lot of balls off and get into bad counts because he's, he's missing balls that he should be driving in the alley. And instead of trying to lift the ball out, he should be driving the ball out, like staying on top of the ball. If you, and again, I know, and I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but let's say, let's not even use his name, but like a player like him who's, who's, uh, not hitting to his, maybe his style. How do you talk to a guy like that? So let's say you built a relationship, he's got confidence and you, you got him in him. What's, how does that dialogue go about if you were to approach a Volpe-like guy? Not necessarily him, but. Again, I, don't, I don't mean to say anything bad about Volpe, Volpe no. because I think this guy's going to be a you know, big time player when it's all over. He's learning. He's learning what he can do, what he can't do. It's every patience, time I see patience. him, it looks like he's getting better. He says patience. So people got to be patient with him. He's it's baseball's hard. He's in the big leagues. He's playing in one of the toughest markets going and we all know he can play and it's a process. He's going to have to be willing to expose mistakes in order to get better. And he's doing that. But I mean, like, how do you, how do you help him along that process? What, what would be a conversation you would have assuming the relationships there, the friendships there, the, the trust is there. Um, how does, how does that conversation take place? Well, what I would do is, uh, like when I was coaching the Cape Cod League, even in the minor leagues, I talked to a player and I say, okay, I'm a scout. You're a scout. we got to talk about you. I want you to fill out a scouting report on yourself. 
and we do it not formally, but just say, okay, hitting is graded 20 to 80. Uh, how would you give yourself as a hitter? You might say 40. They said, okay, how about power, 20 to 80? They'll say 70. They say, you got two home runs. How can you be a 70? <laughs> and so forth. I mean, just let the guy know what he really is and then let him perfect what he is. Again, you can be a good player without having, you know, raw power. Or you can be a good player without being a great hitter. But, again, it gets back to what can you do to help a team win? What do you do when the game's on line? What do you do when the guy's on second base and nobody out? You know, what do you do to uh, help the team win? I mean, I always told hitters there's two things. You get on, nobody on, and nobody out, uh, nobody else on base, you got to get on base. Other runners on base, you got to, you know, advance the runners. So how you do it is up to you, and that becomes what kind of player you are. Yeah, so, but, so again, honesty is important, too. I mean, you've – What's that? Honest, honesty becomes a key player in this game as well because these – I'm sure these guys, especially nowadays, have more hangers on than – maybe guys in the past where everybody's telling them how wonderful they are, how great they are. So conversation where it's just black and white honesty, I'm sure is refreshing. Well, you got to, you got to address the the problem first before you can get a solution. So if you know what the problem is, you got a chance to get a solution. But if you don't know you have a problem trying to hit home runs when you can't hit home runs, you're not going to find a solution. I mean, home runs happen by hitting the ball hard and then far goes Fart takes care of itself. But some people don't have the bat, quick, bat quickness or the strength to make the ball go far, but they can still drive the ball to all fields and be a very effective hitter. And um, that's what you got to express on about these guys. You know, be an effective hitter. Take what you have and do it the best of your ability. But I think if you uh, have them evaluate properly what they are, it'll show you where their weaknesses is because they think there's something that they're not. And uh, that's where a problem starts. Yeah. I think in baseball and life to it, but you had talked patience right there. I'll let you move on from patience now or touch more on patience or the next topic. All right. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, the next thing is discipline. I mean, all good leaders have people follow them because they want to, not because they are afraid of the consequences. So if you're a coach and you're a dictator and you tell the players, you got to do this and you got to do that, and so forth. But, you know, you have rules for one reason, to make them better. Um, you don't have rules to be punish them, but your rules are designed to make them better. They might not like all the rules, but the same token, they're, they're designed to make them better. What and, are some of your rules? Well, you run hard till you're out. And uh, every rule I had, I, you know, I enforced them. So I'd tell a guy, you know, I mean, it's natural in baseball for guys to get jammed or something like that and not run hard to first base. And that's just terrible. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of like uh, ignore it, then I'd warn them, then I'd bang them. It's like when I referee basketball, I'll say, you know, warn, I mean, ignore it, then warn them, and then call a foul or whatever. Can't do it all the time, but in certain situations, especially like the three-second rule. You know, you ignore it, next time say, hey, get out of here. But in, in managing, if you uh, tell them, like my, my big thing was running balls out. I said, you know what, if you're tired, I'm going to take you out of the game. You sit next to me. But a lot of times it's a, not really a habit, but it's something that they're upset with themselves. So instead of running hard, they get jammed or something like that. They'll go down first baseline, like, you know, half-hearted, you know, half-speed or three-quarter speed. So I pull them aside and I say, look, you know, you've always hustled. You've always done good. I don't know what the hell's going on today, but you know what? you got to run hard. Next time you don't don't run hard, 
I'm going to probably take you out of the game. I mean, you know, you can't find them unless maybe you're in the minor leagues or the big leagues, of course. But but it just you only want to run hard three or four times, you know, a game, and it's not that hard to run hard. It doesn't take any skill to run hard. But you never know when a, a position player is going to drop the ball, fumble the ball, and so forth. So I also you run hard till you out. Now I played in the College World Series in 1965. That's how old I am. Arizona State had a coach named Bobby Winkles. Those players sprinted from every position. They sprinted on and off the field in between innings every time. Not jog, they sprinted. So center fielder, right fielder, left fielder, they ran a whole lot more than infielders, of course. But even the catchers sprinted to behind home plate. And it was so effective. And it was, you know, it just was amazing to see that. I've never seen a team do that before or after. But they sprinted. And I'll tell you what, what helped them is that, you know, now you condition yourself, number one, but it just made you you know, run everywhere you went, sprint everywhere you go. And he never had a problem with guys running hard to first base. Yeah, but it's again, huh? it's, a, it's, it's what discipline is rooted in good habits. That's I think discipline gets a negative connotation. You described it great where people believe discipline's got a, a negative. People think it's negative and I disagree. I think it's good habits. It's doing those things every time, do them as hard and smart as you possibly can. And, and you know, running hard is not optional. I'm, I'm with you on that, Bob. I, I think it's, yeah. uh, what does that do to another team with, um, what does that do to the other team psychologically when you see, when somebody sees them running out there like that? I tell you, it's intimidating. I mean, they had a great team. They had Rick Monday and Sal Bando and those kind of guys. But I mean, they, they were, it was intimidating watching them sprint on and off the field. First time I ever saw it. And like I said last time, but yeah, we used to run on and off the field, but we didn't sprint like they did. And, to me, it's a, you know, it just shows you he was in charge. And, you know, Bobby Winkle's in charge, and that's how they played the game. And if you don't want to do it that way, then see you later. But, you know, they weren't punishing anybody, but actually it was helping each guy. The more sprints you do during the course of the game, the better chance you have of staying healthy, not pulling a muscle, and probably getting a little faster in the meantime. But, uh, again, when somebody doesn't obey a rule, um, the best time is get them aside in the clubhouse or in your in your office and say, look at to unite. You know what you're supposed to do. You know, you, you, you didn't do it right. I'll give it, you know, one, you know, one break, so to speak. But, you know, you always hustle your butt off every day. I don't know what's the matter with you today, but you got to run hard. And, you know, that's usually the end of the story. And they, they realize it and they won't do it again. But they do it again. Now you got dis- discipline. It's embarrassing yeah. to take them out of game, but that's what you got to do. I talk to a lot of coaches out there on a daily basis and everybody has their rules and guidelines and, things of that nature, but you're hitting on a key component um, and, and households do the same thing that a lot of coaches struggle with. They've got the rules, they've got the guidelines, but they have a hard time enforcing them because it takes guts to stick by your rules. Because the, the, the biggest issue that I always tell coaches is if you can't coach your best player, if you can't get your best player in line in terms of buying into what you want in terms of discipline, you're going to have a tough time. And what's your advice to coaches in regards to that? Your best player is, is the guy that's not hustling down first base or violates a rule. Um, does your approach change? Uh, is there more, you know, do they have more bank with you because they're the best player? How, how do you handle that? And I know it's probably situational relationship, all that stuff, but kind of, kind of give them some advice. If you have a rule, you better enforce the rule. Don't make a rule if you're not going to enforce it. And the rule is for everybody, not just the bad guys. It's for the good guys and the bad guys from top to bottom. And if it, you're one of your best players – doesn't uh, confide in your rule, doesn't obey your rule, you got to discipline him. It's like if he was the worst player. And 
again, you don't want to make a rule just to make a rule. You want to make a rule that's basically going to help a player get better. And running balls out and makes a player get better, makes a team better. And, you know, there's other, you might have some other rules that they shouldn't be rules. I mean, maybe suggestions, but, you know, unless it's something that's going to uh, affect the outcome of a game or something like that, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, the top guy in the team or the bottom guy, you got to enforce it and you got to take the guy aside and say, let me tell you something. I used to tell some of the guys who are really good players, I said, you know, you got more to lose than that guy over there because that guy over there, he's not going anywhere. He's going to be here for, you know, until he gets released. But you got a chance going to big leagues. So if you don't abide by the rules, if you're like a distraction to the team, you're probably not going to go to the big leagues either. I mean, good big league teams, good teams, they have camaraderie. They have one happy family, I call it. And they all pull together and they all help each other. You know, a lot of times, you know, a good good team will have the players discipline each other. Yeah. You know, when I was with the Braves, I got to meet, you know, got know Bobby Cox really well. And I see, you know, he never had a discipline problem to speak of. He'd go to, uh, go to a couple of his players and say, uh, uh, Chipper, go talk to so and so. He sees something going a little haywire. Chipper would take care of it. And that's what the ideal thing to have is that, that somebody put out the fire before the coach has it. Now, when I was a man, a coach in the big leagues, I see something going a little sideways. I talk to the player. I say, hey, you better not do that. You know, just get, get your act together and, and do what you're supposed to do. I tell the manager that I talk to him and everything. And you put some of the, you know, fire out before the whole town's on fire, so to speak. Yeah, It's a way to coach the players on how to lead because there's, that's indirect leadership at its finest. And I think I, you know, it's similar messaging that, that I used to have with the players. And that was, you know, you've got to identify these issues. You have to help institute them. You have to help police them because if it gets past you and gets to me, I'm forced to deal with it my way. So the better you guys do of making this habits. And then when it slips, catch it right away. Don't let it get to me. And, uh, I like that. I think it's there's there's too much wishy washy um, leadership today out there. Not just on the baseball field, but I think in life you see it with parenting. Um, yeah. I think kids want discipline. And that's, we're not talking militaristic. But they want to do things the right way. They and we as coaches, we know how to do it the right way. We we've been there. We've done that. We've made the mistakes. So for them to rely upon, or for them to to waste, let's say you for instance, all this baseball knowledge. If they want to waste your intelligence on, hey, you got to run hard, that's a waste of you as a, as a baseball guy where you could be coaching them on intricate baseball things, but they're relegating you to what I would say babysitter. Or, hey, got to run hard, got to run hard. It's, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's a message to the players out there. You've got guys around you that are good, good baseball people. Let them coach you in baseball, not the baby stuff. You handle the little stuff. Let them handle the big stuff. Well, you said it best. You know, players want discipline. And a lot of times, sometimes before the season, you have a team meeting. You say, okay, what are the rules? And I didn't have a lot of rules. I mean, play hard, show up on time, and give it your best effort all the time. And you have a few other minor rules here and there. But, again, the players want discipline. They, they, they want to be have pride in their team and pride in the way they play. And when a team loafs all the time, and I see it all the time in the big leagues. I mean, of course, they're playing 162 games. They're doing all kinds of stuff before the game, after the game. So, there's no doubt there's a fatigue factor that sets in there, but you got to respect the game. And, but you got to respect your teammates, respect your, uh, your organization and so forth. And it's just a discipline that is going to make you better, but it's going to make you feel better too, because you're doing what's right and how you're supposed to play the game. I, I, I like that. And I appreciate that. I think that's the best way to go. What's after discipline now? Well, you got a little sense of humor. I mean, you can't take it real serious. I mean, 
you know, you got to be able to joke with a player now and then, even with the umpires. I mean, that's another thing. A coach got to learn how to deal with the umpires. I mean, if you're always out there complaining about every call, the umpire is going to get you. I referee basketball. And I used to, uh, I can't say I called a foul on purpose where sometimes a guy was, you know, might be a foul of one guy and not a foul of the other guy, but the guy was a jackass. I'd probably call a foul on it. Might have been not a foul on somebody else, but you got to educate him a little bit. And, uh, but, you know, umpires have a tough job, and they're human beings too. So, I mean, I always go longer with the umpires. Um, I get thrown out of many games, but next day is a new game. And uh, it just that uh, I respect how tough is umpire because from being a referee in basketball myself. So, I mean, I probably had a little more empathy for him than some people. I mean, Larry Boa and I coached together. I played against him a long time ago, but coached together with, with the uh, Dodgers. And I used to bring a lineup out to the umpires. And uh, Larry said all the time, hey, y'all keep talking to these guys like your best buddies and all that kind of stuff. Say, Larry, I know how to handle the umpires, okay? If I went out there and give them some guff about last night's game, you're gonna, they're going to get us. I mean, they're human beings. They're going to get us to a certain extent somehow. I mean, some are professional enough not to look real obvious. But, you know, I tell the guy that was, you know, going up our, it was up our third base that night, when we all saw, I just talked to him and said, he did a great job. He had a play last night. I mean, I wouldn't say it if he was terrible, but. I would say it just to make him feel good. I mean, umpires need encouragement and confidence also. And it's a tough job. But, you know, they, they respected that. And not that he gave us any favors, but I'm going to tell you right now, you know, Boa would yell from the dugout, you know, the ball's inside or outside. Now, from the dugout, you can't yell inside and outside. You got to yell. You can yell high or low, but you can't see inside and outside. Nowadays, with a way to catch her, he yanks the ball in. You could probably say the ball is outside or you wouldn't have yanked it in the way he did. But Joe and I would sit there and Bo be yelling at the guy. And Bo and I and Joe and I would look at each other. <laughs> we just laugh. Like, you know? but that was Bo. I mean, Bo was so intense and great baseball guy, but he was just so intense. And uh so I just tell you a little story. One time they used to take the lineup out most of the time. We lost two or three games in a row, so Bo said, I'm taking lineups out. So he brought him out there, right? And he's out there, he rarely talks to the umpires. The umpires don't like him, and he don't like the umpires, and it's very obvious. So next night I go out and bring the lineups out again. And he's the umpire say, don't send that guy out here again. We don't want to talk to him. <laughs> but Bo was a great baseball guy, but he was just so uptight and so intense that he hated anybody that would, you know, make a call against his team or against, you know, when he was playing against him. But again, I mean, some people like that. But same token, I know one thing, when he played, I guarantee he didn't get a whole lot of calls for him because, you know, he was so intense and so argumentative. But that's, you know, the relationship you have to have, I mean, I used to go out there and I, I look at the guy. He, he blew the call, and I say, you know, just tell me you blew it, or you might have missed it, and I'll leave. Oh no, no, I got it right. Well, I knew he got it wrong, but if he doesn't just say, you know, I might have missed it, you got what can you say? See you later. And then, you know, a lot of times we go out there, and you know, it'd be a, I thought it was a fair ball or a foul ball, vice versa. And so I go out there and argue. I said, you know, if the ball goes to the left of that line, that means we still playing that's a foul ball. We playing that's a fair ball now. And he kind of looked at me like I was crazy, but you know, just a little humor. And he would, you know, he just said, get out of here. And all that. But it was something that, you know, he knew he might have missed it. I knew he did miss it, but I wasn't going to embarrass him too much. You go, ran and raving, unless it really was something meant something or something else led up to that. But you got to give him the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, you know, you got to protect your players, of course. So once in a while, you got to go out there when you think he might you know, made a mistake or might have missed. But the player gets upset and starts an argument. I never want my players to get thrown out of the game. I can get thrown out, but I want them out. So I go out there, get between the player, tell the player to get out of here. I talk to the umpire and I say, let me tell you what. I think you might be right. 
but I have to come out here. He, so he understood that. But you have to argue sometimes to protect your player, let them think you're sticking up for them. Now, if I thought the umpire was wrong too, and the player did, well, then who knows what might happen? I might be out of the game or whatever. But, you know, they don't, you know, there's some good umpires and bad umpires. But I got a problem with some umpires. Umpires don't know how to handle situations. I mean, they don't understand that managers might get upset. You know, they're trying to win a game. So when they come out and argue, you can't just go ballistic and, and start, you know, going at the um, at the uh, manager, the coach. You got, you know, a little understanding that, you know, they thought you missed it and maybe you did miss it. So it's not an easy job, but I still think that uh, the communication for the coach and the umpires is very important. You can't show them up and uh, you can't like just humiliate them either. But I know last couple, this week here, I saw a couple um, young umpires. One guy missed three calls at first base, you know, back to back. And another guy missed a couple of ball strike calls. And, but again, you know, they, they're tense, they're nervous. And he probably didn't see it. I mean, a lot of times, like you say, you're looking, but you can't see it. And uh, I know from refereeing basketball, sometimes the ball's calls right in front of you, but you just don't see it. You know what I mean? It's just you probably in basketball, you might get too close. Even baseball, sometimes you may, may get too close to a call, especially a foul ball, fair ball. You, you know, your eyes aren't fast enough to see actually where it landed. But I think the big thing in relationship with the umpires, you have to be, you know, a little bit uh, empathy with them. See how, you know, it's not an easy job. No, that's why it's that's one job I wouldn't want. I, you know, I think the key point you hit on for those coaches listening is you just want communication because your players are asking you for explanation. You probably sometimes want explanation too, but your job is to coach those players. And we've got audience members that are coaching young kids all the way up to professional level. So I think with, with the clear message here is you, you've got to approach the umpire actually in a similar way you're talking about with the players. Uh, you talk tension the more tense that umpire is, the, the more apt they are to make a mistake because uh, they're they're going to be off their game a little bit. Not that you want them to keep making mistakes and let them get away with one, but my message always was is, Bob, with, with umpires, even now that I'm, I'm uh, working with, with grassroots kids and helping them grow, is I'll go out and say, hey, you know what? We're going to mess up 100 times today, probably. As long as you don't get on me about that, I won't get on you about calls. Just communicate with me. If I come out and ask, I'm just asking so I can educate these kids on what they're doing right and wrong. And I always call the umpires by name too. I'm not big on calling them blue. Uh, what part yeah. of it is uh, my, my son plays for us. My oldest son, his nickname is blue. And so I always tell the opposing coach to us, listen, my center fielder's name is blue. He bats yeah. wherever he's batting in the lineup today. If you hear me yelling blue, I'm not calling to the umpires. I'm not showing up anybody. I'm, I'm talking to my, uh, my guy out there. So a um, yeah. little precursor with that. Anybody's got a kid named blue. Yeah, that's good. But I mean, again, you got to respect. I mean, they got a job to do. You have a job to do. You got to have respect. It's just like talking about job to do. I mean, I always tell the players, hey, you got a job to do. Your job is to play shortstop, get as many hits you can, play as many, yeah, play as good defensive you can. My job is to manage, a coach. I'm going to make decisions that, you know, I think is best for make the team win. You might not like it, but your job is to play. You give the sign. I might have your bunt. Your job is to bunt. And, you know, once they understand whose job it is, what job it is, and your job and my job, it makes it a whole lot easier. And they respect that. It's like umpiring. You know, his job's umpiring. I mean, you know, if you want umpiring, I guarantee you don't want umpiring. So don't give him too much guff because that's a tough job. Yeah. I have our – we have a thing in the in the dugout before games. I have a, a list. We've got players, coaches, umpires, and parents. And I ask people to check the box they want to play that game, the role they want to play that game so I can – I can figure out where I'm going to put everybody. And we have parents do it too. And uh, 
and I remind them, your, your job's not to, you know, if you're a parent, your job's not to umpire, call balls and strikes, you know, complain from the crowd because that affects what I'm trying to do because they, right. they think you and I are together on this and we're not. Um, <laughs> players, same thing. You want to coach, put it under there. I'll decide who's going to coach, um, you know, once the game gets started. You let me know if I had you at third base and you want to coach, well, I guess someone else is playing third base today. But, uh, yeah, I think it's important for everybody, umpires, coaches, players, parents, to go into each situation knowing what your place is and just play your role. And the game tends to take care of itself. That's right. I mean, another thing like team morale, I mean, I think a good coach will make everybody in a team feel like they have some importance to the team. I mean, there's starters and there's there's uh, bench guys. But when bench guy gets a chance to play, you got to praise what he does. I mean, he might be the guy that, uh, you know, beat out an infield single to keep the rating going. He might be a guy that made a great play. But it's important that you get the make them all feel important and bring it out, you know, in front of all the team. Like, Hey, we won this game because so-and-so beat that ball out. So make him feel as important as a star. And that, that's what team morale is all about. And it's like, if you have a good, a good attitude toward everything and everybody makes a key contribution at times, that's what it's all about. I mean, yesterday we had uh, a guy that uh, back up shortstop, second baseman. He came in the game late in the game. We ended up getting six runs the last inning. He got the kit to win the game. And the players mobbed him. I mean, they respect this guy who's worked his butt off. He's not good enough yet to be a regular player, but he won the game with a, a hit, and they mobbed him like uh, he was the biggest hero of, on the team. But that's what morale is all about. And yeah. he had his chance to do something, and he did it. And and you got to really uh, reward somebody like that and respect that because someday everybody's going to have a chance to make a key contribution to the game. Now, some guys are definitely, uh, you know, everyday players and everyday stars, but the guy that comes off the bench, doesn't play very much, makes a big contribution. Everybody's got to reward him. And I was just show what kind of team that, you know, we have, we got a lot of morale and they, they keep playing better and better and they keep getting better and better. So it's a fun team to watch right now. Yeah. That's the idea. You got to keep progressing. A guy like that, who, who's, you know, waiting his turn playing once every four or five days, maybe doesn't know when he's going to get called, get called on great message to kids out there. You've got to be ready for your opportunity. If that guy was sulking or he was feeling sorry for himself or he was, you know, ticked off and let it affect performance, he maybe misses that opportunity and maybe he doesn't get the next chance to play out there. My, my favorite thing, Bob, I, 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 I get kids on this every time they may come when I coached you know, basketball or baseball and they, they'd say, well, I, I can't do much with seven minutes a game, or I can't do much with, you know, four at bats, you know, every three games. And I'm like, yeah. okay. And then I just give them to somebody else. And then they come right. and ask, well, what, what happened to my minutes? Well, you said you couldn't do anything with them. So yeah, right. I'm going to give them to this guy who can, and he's going to earn eight, nine, ten minutes, or maybe he gets six at-bats every three games. Who knows? But that usually wakes him up a little bit. Well, I think a good coaching technique, too, is that, you know, tell the guy that's not a regular player, you know, stay ready. You never know when I'm going to need you. But be ready when I need you. It's like when you don't play a guy. Say you give a guy a day off. Uh, we had a situation when I was coaching in Oakland that the manager didn't play one of our regulars. You know, he's hanging the lineup up, but, you know, as a bench coach, he's hanging the lineup all the time. And so I, uh, before the game, I told him, I said, why don't you go talk to him and say, look, just tell him you're not going to play today. I'm not going to start you give you a little rest, but be ready. Seven, eight, 19. You might, I might need you to pinch hit. Well, he said, no, I don't think I got to talk to him. I'd say he's a veteran player. Number one, you, you, you know, you owe the respect to the guy. It's not that tough. Just be honest with him. I mean, you know, you want to give another guy a chance and you want to give him a rest. Excuse me, or whatever your reason is, just let him know before I put the lineup up. Well, no, he didn't want to do that. So I put the lineup up. Here's this guy. He Now he goes ballistic. 
He goes, what the hell? How come I'm not playing? Blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, there's his manager's office right over there. He said, go talk to him. So he goes in there. And I walked by the manager's office a while later. And I hear him shouting back and forth. And and I, I said, later on, I said to him, you know, he was a new manager. And he brought me on because he knew I helped him a lot in the minor leagues as a manager. And he wanted me, you know, use my expertise, so to speak. And so after I went back there, I said, how'd you make out? He said, not too good. I said, well, I told you, you got to talk to him first and present him with it to him and tell him why. I said, you got to have communication. I mean, all these guys want to know whether the, you know, the bottom of the pile or the top of the pile, they want to know. I mean, there should be no excuse, no uh, surprises. When you hang up a lineup and he's usually in the lineup and he's not in the lineup, you know, he, he wants to know why. In the last few years I coached, some of the guys were upset when they were in the lineup, especially on a Sunday. So what the hell am I playing for today? <laughs> because they wanted a day off. But but just it's all about communication and just be honest with them, whether it's a top guy or the bottom guy. Just be honest with them. Let them know this is what's going on and why. Now they might not like it, but they gotta accept it. And many times I said to them, you know, you don't mind like no matter yeah, you might not like what I'm telling you, but you better accept it because that's how it's gonna be. Okay, no problem. But they'll respect you for being direct. I, I think as both of us being on both sides of the ball there. I always respected the guy. And like you said, I didn't always agree with it, but as a player, you respect the guy that has that hard conversation with you. And there's a difference between a hurt and a slight, a hurt, you'll get over it. But when you feel like you're being slighted with, you know, like the absence of communication, (laughs) that, excuse me, I won't use the word, but that SOB is going to hate you to the day he dies. He's going to be pissed off like that, like that gentleman, like that man skipper went through. Well, you, you got the one thing you got to be honest with the players. You're not going to bullshit the players, okay? You got to be honest with them. Like I had a kid come in, he, he played double A. He comes to my office one day, said, "You think I'm a big league player?" I said, "You want me to tell you what I? You want me to tell you what you want to hear? You want me to tell you the truth?" He said, "No, tell me the truth." They said, "No." I said, "You got to give yourself a lot of credit for getting as high as double A, because you're a scrappy guy. You play hard, but you're limited. You don't run that well. You don't have much power. You don't have a lot of range. I mean, you're just not a big league talent." But doesn't mean that you're not a good player. But, you know, don't, uh, you know, if, if you disagree with me, that's okay. I'm just telling you what I think. But I was honest with him. He got up walked out of the office. He didn't talk to me for two days. <laughs> the right. third day he comes to me and says, no, Shafe, <laughs> I really appreciate you being honest because I had a good job at home. I don't know if I was going to take it or not. And I said, well, if you're my son, I'm going to tell you. But, you know, you know yourself better than I know you. I'm just telling you, if you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to tell you, yeah, you're going to go to big leagues and you get disappointed when you don't get to the big leagues. So just, you know, take it. And, you know, he, he's, he's writing me letters all the time, Christmas cards. and But he appreciated my honesty, which that's the way I am, because I'm not smart enough to lie. I'm smart enough to tell you the truth. And that's yeah. where uh, it all worked, went to. And uh, it, it did him a service because he went home, started his career over again. And But I said, you got to feel proud that you made it to double A, because most guys with your talent wouldn't make it out of A-ball. So anyway, that went over okay eventually, but not too good first time. Yeah. Well, you were honest. I think that's the, the yeah. theme of it all. What do you got? Another I know, thing, you know yeah, no, forever, I want to hear the rest of this stuff. Yeah, lo- loyalty is a big thing too. You know I mean? You, you, I always tell the player, I'm not going to show you up. Don't show me up. I won't show you up. Don't show your teammate up because that's that's not how you play the game. I mean, something I, you know, pitchers, somebody's going to make an error now and then, and you can't, uh, you know, you can't show them up. I mean, that's going to happen. They don't show you up in your walkie guy. So you can't show them up and don't show me up. If, you know, if I take you out of the game and just give me the ball and so forth. But I think that uh, a lot of times afterwards, the media talks, you kind of make excuses for him. He made it, you know, blew a missed a ground ball. And, you know, the, the media is going to try to, 
you know, bury him, have you bury him. I said, no, he played it right. The ball took a bad hop or something like that. But that you don't want to say as a careless player, I don't know why he tried to make that player or something like that. Just, just stick up for the player. There's a reason he did it, and you could see the reason it was, and it just didn't work out. But uh, respect for each other is the most important thing, and, and loyalty is, is a big thing for team unity. And teams that win have loyalty to each other and the manager and so forth. Yeah, I like that phrase. I, I don't show me up, I won't show you up. So things like, you know, not hustling a ball out. That's forcing your hand as a as a skipper to, you know, to to show somebody up. You may do it privately first, but um, but yeah, and the same thing with the pitching thing. I, I hate that too when when managers come out. But again, you often wonder now that you're pointing this out. What's the relationship up to that point? Do they have yeah. that bond together where they won't show each other up? <clears throat> Well, like I said, you got to be one happy family, and you got to establish that right from the beginning. And if somebody steps out of line a little bit, you got to pull them aside and talk to them and say, like, "That's not how we do it here." You can't show them up in front of the whole team, even though the whole team knows he screwed up. But the team knows when you talk to somebody privately; they know. And sometimes you're gonna have to talk to somebody in private that bent the rules or didn't follow the way you want them to do certain things, and you got to let them know. But it's like again, it's loyalty and it's it's team unity so to speak and uh you know like i was never big on meetings uh, i used to talk to guys individually about a problem but i think meetings should basically be for instructional purposes you know why you know maybe we made that uh, fundamental mistakes or something defense or something like that just go over stuff like that you know maybe i'll tell I'll, I'll have a meeting a lot of times and before a series and say you know why i did this why why i hit and ran in that situation why i didn't bunt in a situation why i did bunt or why i did this or did that and that you know, the sooner the players start realizing what you're going to do, it makes it a lot easier for them to, to execute and uh, become a good team. Well, I think that starts the dialogue and starts getting it's – a, it's, a, it's a really good way to get your philosophy in place because, as you said, players want to know why. And if managers aren't – if managers aren't afraid to explain why, and even sometimes, you know, there's multiple choices that you can, can choose in a situation – the, the the better you get those players engrossed in your philosophy, um, the the more apt you're apt to have that one happy family, as you mentioned. And one happy family is everybody doesn't have to agree, right? I mean, there's no, no family unless you're dealing with the Brady bunch. Even they had their arguments out there. But uh, yeah, no, I like that. I think th- I, I think you've got to be secure as a as a, as a leader <laughs> to be able to do that, uh, which which I encourage our audience to step towards. Yeah, well, I think another thing as a coach, you should never be afraid to lose. In other words, I see coaches do things that make themselves look good and try not to lose. Well, let me tell you what. I mean, just simple uh, strategy. A lot of times we tie game, man on first and second, late in the game. I might have the guy hit and run, even first and second, because I know I'm going to, you know, put some pressure on the hitter. But same token, he's going to chance me to hero if he hits a base hit. If it's a ground ball, it's probably not going to be a double play because they're both running. If he swings and misses, it's probably going to be a double play. Or you're going to be, you know, out of third or you're probably third, maybe second, but usually third, he gets caught stealing. But but a little pressure on him. But, you know, put him in a position where we're, we're going to try to win instead of trying not to lose. And I think that uh, when the, the players sense that that's what you're doing, they're going to have a lot more fun because they all want to be a hero. They want to have, uh, you know, be the, the guy that helps win the game as against the guy that didn't lose the game. But I think a lot of times a coach will lose respect to his players when – they see him doing stuff to make himself look good as a coach rather than what make the player look good as a player. Give an example of that. Well, Without, like I said, you don't have to call anybody out, but just give an example of that. 
Well, I think, like I said, that uh, a lot of times you'll, you'll leave it, you know, there's psychological decisions and strategical decisions. And a lot of times you've got to make, especially early in the year, early in the game, you've got to make a psychological decision. What's good for the player? I got to let him hit hit here rather than pinch hit for him. I got to let him swing away on a 3-0 pitch rather than make him take it because I want to make him feel good about himself and give him a chance to be the hero or to be, you know, be the guy to help us win the game. But it's like, uh, you know, if I had him, say I had a guy first and second, nobody out, and the bunt is to play normally eighth, ninth inning. But like I said with Emo Brown, I said, no, you're, gonna, you're not going to bunt. I mean, I could make had him bunt, and he just made a good bunt. You know, now take the hand out of a good hitter. You know, I also had a rule, hitters don't bunt and bunters don't hit. Well, he was one of my hitters. So I put it in his mind, I want you to hit away. And he did, and he executed, and we ended up winning the game because of it. And he felt good about it. The team felt good about it. But I was not afraid of losing. I mean, if I was afraid of losing, I'd have him bunt. But I, was, I wanted to win. And that's what you do. You, you do stuff that's going to help you win, not something that's going to make you not, not lose. And uh, so at the end of the game, I mean, you know, if uh, – yeah, I remember reporters, you know, talked to me about it. It was in Kansas City, like I said earlier. <clears throat> they said, well, I thought you were going to bunt there. I said, well, I had my best hitter up there. Or one of my best hitters. I hitters don't bunt, bunters don't hit. And George Brett heard me say that, and he said, I love that. I said, well, I don't know where I got that. I didn't make it up. I heard it somewhere, and that was my philosophy. Now, if he's a lesser hitter, he might bunt him over. But, again – yeah, do what's best for the hitter. The hitter's got to know what kind of hitter he is. As a manager or coach, you got to know what kind of hitter he is, what he can do in certain situations. But when you go to a game, your job is to try to win the game. And uh, whatever it takes defensively or offensively to try to win the game instead of trying not to lose the game, it's going to be a lot more fun, and you're going to win a lot more games. Yeah. I like that phrase, too. It's a little too succinct to be a yogiism, but I, but I like it. I like yeah. it. What else you got? What, uh, I can't, I'm, I'm stealing so much time from you today, but as long as you're willing to keep rolling with it, I think this is good stuff for our audience. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, get, I think I'm about done all my, all my stuff. But, uh, you know, again, coaching is a great profession. I mean, you get your satisfaction when players do well. And I went to my leagues. Every time I send a guy to the big leagues, that's my satisfaction. Fortunately, I get to the big leagues myself. But uh, that's where your job make the players better, give them a good, a good atmosphere to play in, I see a lot of my players. I have, I still a lot of my players call me, you know, especially Christmas time or sometimes. Hey, Shafe, how you doing? You're still alive? I say I'm still alive. I'm still doing okay. But <laughs> yeah, they talk about we all said you know we had good times, but we did. I mean, I like to joke around. And I like to have fun, and you know it's, it, it's like they all said that you know we learned a lot of baseball. We had a lot of fun. I said, well, that's what it's all about. Learn about baseball and have fun doing it, and, and see what happens. But yeah, I was fortunate in my leagues. We got to the playoffs like six out of eight years and won championship like four out of eight years and then they got to the big league. So, I mean, it was, I was fortunate, but it was fun doing it. And I met a lot of great people and we still, like I say, stay in contact with some guys and uh, it's just a, it's a good, good situation. That's, that's winning in itself. And I always say winning is a byproduct of doing things the right way all the time. And you touched on the discipline you've always touched on the relationships and you won championships, but you're also getting communication with, players that you coached, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think that's winning also. Um, I get a sense, and this is always my test of these coaches that reach out to me and we talk a lot. If I were to stop a, you know, name the coach player. So in this case, say a Bob Schaefer player out there in the middle of public, whether they played for you last year or 20 years ago. And I said, what's a Bob Schaefer team about? I get a sense they'd be able to answer that pretty, pretty succinctly. Well, 
I had, you know, I mean, of all the guys I coaches, I probably one or two I didn't like and a, a secret. I mean, I, some I like more than others. Yeah. You know, of course. But the secret, again, of being a good coach is not letting the guys you don't like know you don't like them. Yeah. And there's yep. only a couple of guys I can say like that, but most of them, I liked them a lot. Some I liked more than others, but yeah, you know, we always had a good time. We, we, you know, we joked around, we, we had fun playing and I know like my first year in Memphis in, uh, in Greensboro and first year in pro bowl, we won like 101 games and uh, we had a great team. I had Don Manley and Greg Gagne and a bunch of guys, a few guys, other guys got to the big leagues, but you know, we jumped off quick and then we got like, you know, out in front by five games. Okay. Now our goal is to get 10 over 500. Then our goal is to get 15 over 500. And we end up getting, I don't know, 33 or 500 or something like that. But, but we were, we were just, you know, we executed. I mean, we out there before the game, we'd have bunning practice on the outfield with all the position players. And, you know, we did a lot of fundamentals and we could, you know, we could, you know, we could execute. I mean, we'd steal a lot. We'd uh, delayed steal. I mean, you know, you hear you know, a guy get on base and a guy from the dugout, the other dugout say, watch the delayed steal, watch this, watch that. But we'd hit and run. We'd, we'd do stuff to make, make our team better and then to score runs and to win the game. And it was fun. Exciting baseball that way, and I, I I like the players that you're communicating with. I don't know if they they have a sense of humor, or if they're giving you confidence when they say hey, you're still alive. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> a both, I guess, right? But uh, so with I, I heard I when I went to I was very young. My dad took me to a Bobby Knight basketball camp. This is touching on liking players, and he asked a question at the beginning of camp: How many of you guys had coaches you played for that you didn't like? And I was of that generation as a player. You don't ever admit that. You like all your coach. I put, my dad was my coach for God's sakes all the way through. So he raised his hand. He goes, I did. And after, you know, two minutes of coaxing, everybody in the gym raised their hand, except for me. I still couldn't raise my hand. I kind of hid in the back a little bit. And he's like, I'm going to let you get guys on a little secret. We don't like all you SOBs either. And that, that was the way he started out his basketball camp. And I, I remember at the time asked, talking to my dad about that on the way home. And he's like, kind of like, yeah, there's, but I never knew who he liked and who he didn't like. But yeah. uh, that's a great point. Kids remember that too. I mean, you know, you, they're, they're, coaches are human. Umpires are human. Um, you know, to, to try to lock in on what your coach is about. They're not asking you to do anything dangerous. They're not asking you to do anything demeaning. They're just trying to help you become better ball players. So lock into it, give them what they want. Well, what it is to, you know, Dave, the coach has a great influence on young kids, whether it's little league, high school, college, whatever. Um, some kids don't have a father, uh, a father figure anyway. And, uh, you know, my college coaches, you know, he had a lot to do with my success. And, I mean, he talked to me a lot about stuff, my, you know, high school coach. But, you know, a, young, a coach for young kids has a lot of uh, influence on a kid growing up and molding him to be what he's going to be. So as a coach, you know, you realize, but that's, again, the reason. Do the things the right way. I mean, don't cheat one way or don't try to do something just to win a game. If you, the team gets better, you're going to win games automatically. If you play the, if you uh, play right, you're going to win. But, yeah. Uh, and like we, you said, everybody has a job and a job and a team to do. And once they learn their job and once they know what the job is, uh, it becomes a big, you know, one happy family. Yeah. And I hope our audience took down the the topics you did. If not, I'll put them in the show notes. I think it's it's worth revisiting multiple times and. Great message to end it on because as, you know, as coaches, people get caught up in the technical aspects of the, of the game, whatever game they're coaching. I think that's that's very important. You've got to be an expert on that stuff or be striving for that. Always want to be learning. However, the point you just made as a coach, as an authority figure, as a father figure, you know, female, a mother figure to these kids, I don't care how old they are. 
you have the power and the ability to create or destroy any experience for a kid or a young adult. So that that's the stuff that used to keep me up at night when I was a young coach, 28 division one, I didn't have, we didn't have kids yet. So I, I was, somebody else was giving me their babies, even though they were 22 year old babies, I yeah. was in charge of them. And I knew every time I stepped out there, they were clinging to my voice and I could create or destroy any day for them. I wanted. And that scared the heck out of me as a coach. Yeah. But that's where your satisfaction comes to coach. I mean, you know, winning championships or winning games means a lot. But, you know, when they call you five, ten years later and say, hey, how you doing? Or even longer, it, it makes you feel good. Yeah. And uh, they all say, well, I remember how much fun we had and all this kind of stuff. And uh, But that's what it's all about. you got to have fun. And, of course, winning helps you have fun. But that's it's, it. a, it's a great, great situation. I've been very fortunate that I was able to coach at several levels and finally got to the big leagues. And. I scout, but uh, I still miss being on the field. I still miss the teaching part of it. Yeah, no, you're 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 one of the best I've ever heard. I don't care what sport, what level, and uh, every time we have a show, I have to bounce back and forth between being a co-host with you and then being someone who's learning as well. I take notes the whole show on what you do, so I appreciate you. I know our audience very sophisticated. We got a lot of great baseball guys that listen. They soak your stuff up uh, like crazy. And then, uh, you know, for, for them, we, we've kept John over an hour and 10 minutes now. We're going to we're gonna let you go. But I want to thank you for sharing your techniques with our audience. I know they got smarter today, as I did, and look forward to our show next week. You going to tease the audience a little bit what we're going to talk about, or are you going to hold it until next week? I'm, I'm out of topics right now. I have to think of something. You can think of something. But, uh, you, know, we, we, you know, maybe from the feedback from the audience, what do you think you want to talk about? Uh, you've done just about every fundamental defensively and offensively, but uh, maybe, I mean, we talked about, you know, individual stuff like sliding and bunting and stuff like that, but I don't know if you, I think you have people that does do infield and hitting and stuff like that, but if not, we can get into some of that stuff. Oh, I, I've got a long, I, next week may be a selfish show on my part. I've got a laundry list of things that I want to pick your brain on. So right. we may have a, uh, we may have a selfish show next week. It may be all about Dave next week asking questions because, That'd be good. But, you know, you're a great baseball guy and you understand and uh, makes my job easier because when they say something, you understand what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, not everybody I can honestly say knows the game. So now you got to explain certain things to them. But, you know, when I say something, you understand it, which makes my job a whole lot easier. So I look forward to next next week. Yeah. So the questions at me and if I'm stumped, I'll say you tell me the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I told my wife the other day, I, I, uh, I, again, I grew up as a coach's son, and I said, I think I got the best compliment I maybe have ever gotten in my baseball lifetime. Bob Schaefer said to me, you kind of, you know what, you know what I'm talking about, and I appreciate you putting on the air today. And I, I joked with her, too. I said, Ted Kubiak, who's a, who listens to every single show. In fact, he was calling me during this show here. I've got to call him back after. He, uh, he's, he's a big fan of what we do and is pro- hopefully going to jump on and do, do a podcast as well with us. But he told me, this was probably a few months ago, he's given me more sense, but he goes, you know what, David, I listen to every single show, you're getting better. You're getting better. And that, that compliment held me for months right there. I don't need much, but I appreciate the compliment. And it's uh, a well, baseball game like yourself. That's, uh, that means the world to me. So thank you for recognizing that. But um, to our audience, thanks again. 73 countries now, 42,000 plus subscribers. Keep supporting our, our shows here, especially Touch Them All with Bob Schaefer. We've got uh, big things happening this week. We are getting our uh, officially licensed to be a, a real business now. And uh, we are opening up our shops so people will be able to get merchandise and things like that. And we have targeted advertisers. We'll still be an ad-free show, but we're targeting advertisers from our audience. Those 700 DMs I get every day. 
You guys have told me what you purchase sports-wise, otherwise. Uh, and, of course, we support our patriotic stuff as well. But you guys let me know what's going to help you and your pocketbook. So we've added that to our show. And by purchasing the same things you purchase all the time, using our codes, you're going to help support our podcast hosts here like Bob Schaefer. So thanks to our audience. Thanks to our hosts. And, Bob, thank you so much for, for being a major contributor to what we're doing here, trying to just build better baseball IQs. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Okay. And the audience, this is episode 251 on Real Voices of the Game. Touch them all. We're signing off. 